In the book of Nehemiah, we learn about a man that lived for the kingdom, a man that believed God with all of his heart. We've already seen in Nehemiah that he was a man that believed God's word. He knew it very well. He knew those Old Testament scriptures that preceded him, and he believed God's promises. He knew them, and he worked for God's kingdom, and he served God's people. That has already become abundantly clear as we've gone through the first four chapters and part of chapter five. He served God by working and sacrificing to build the walls of Jerusalem. He also led the people with godly humility. You know, it's interesting. Even though we look up and honor this man named Nehemiah, he never promoted himself. Rather, he put the needs of others above his own needs. Simply put, he sacrificed his rights and provisions that had been provided to him for the kingdom. Remember, though, that the book of Nehemiah is not so much about a man named Nehemiah. It's about the Lord. It's about what God does in the life of people like Nehemiah. It's about Yahweh the eternally self-existing God, the one that never fails, the one that's faithful and always keeps his word, the one that saves by his grace all those who believe him. And Nehemiah was such a man, a man that believed God. It was evident that just like Abraham, Nehemiah was a man that had been declared righteous before God. It was all a work of God. This is evidenced in Nehemiah's life. He had a heart for God and a heart for God's people. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, we saw last week that the people of Judah began to complain because they didn't have enough food to eat. They had sacrificed their fields and their vineyards for the sake of building the walls. And in spite of that, the Jewish leaders had taken advantage of them and collected taxes and charged interest even above that. And as a result, they had been forced to mortgage their fields, their vineyards, and even their children, even their daughters had become slaves because they could not pay all the debt. They just didn't have enough. This was Satan's third attempt. Conflict within the body, division within the body. Satan's third attempt to stop the building of the wall. Satan is always there, always trying to undermine the work of God. The first attempt of Satan, we had seen already. Intimidation via ridicule. And that's what the enemies had done. The second attempt by Satan was the threat of an attack from a motivated enemy, a motivated army. But here in chapter 5, we saw last week division within the ranks. And we talked about how dangerous that is. Because sometimes when we're attacked from outside in the body of Christ, it actually strengthens us. But when the attack comes from within, that's the most dangerous. That's when we're threatened. 
And that's exactly what Satan does here. He causes division within the ranks, within the body, within Judah. And as a result, Nehemiah became very angry because of this division. He had a righteous anger because of what's happening. And it actually says, he says, I consulted with myself. And we talked about that last week. It literally means I mastered my feelings or I reigned my heart. Even when we get angry because of unrighteousness, when we have a justification for being angry, we have to reign in our hearts. We must not lose control or overreact due to wickedness around us. We must be controlled by the Spirit of God, lest we sin with a fleshly reaction. It's fine to be angry, but Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, be angry and yet do not sin. Being righteously angry can actually lead to sin on our behalf. But it's possible to be angry because of unrighteousness, but yet not sin. And that's what we're to do. We must not be controlled by our emotions, but by the Spirit of God. Very important. And we saw last week how Nehemiah confronted the nobles and rulers. They were breaking God's law. God had given them a law. They were forbidden to charge taxes to their own people. Nehemiah held a great assembly against them, against these leaders that were doing this, because they did not fear God as they should. They were bringing reproach from the surrounding nations. And yet Israel, and now Judah, they were called to be a light to the nations, and they were failing to do so. In response to the suffering of the people, Nehemiah and his people graciously began lending the people money and grain. He cared about the people. This was God's love in Nehemiah for God's people. And the leaders repented and promised to return the money, the fields, and release their children. And remember what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah shook the the dust from the front of his garment as a symbolic gesture. And he said this, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. In other words, if you don't fulfill this promise, if you don't do what's right before the Lord and keep your word, may God take away all of your possessions. The leaders then committed themselves to keep their promise. And it said, and all the assembly said, amen, or so be it. And they praised the Lord, then the people did according to this promise. So their choice, their repentance, I should say, led to a praise of God, as we saw last week. And, you know, there is freedom when we come to repentance, when we do the right thing by God's power and by God's grace. It brings freedom and praise in our hearts, frees us from the sin brings us back into that walk with God. So they committed themselves to keep their promise. And as we come this morning to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, we see Nehemiah living a warlike lifestyle. Remember last week we said Nehemiah lived a warlike lifestyle on a millionaire's budget. And that's true. 
in the remaining verses of chapter 5, this becomes clearly evident. Notice Nehemiah's sacrifice for the kingdom, verse 14. He writes, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So he's sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom. Nehemiah served as governor of Judah for 12 years, 445 B.C. to 430, excuse, 433, yes, B.C. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually indication back in chapter 2 that he wasn't present all the time that he was governor. But he served as government, governor for 12 years. When he would be absent, the the way they would do things in that way, he would serve through a deputy. But serving as governor had its perks. He refers to the governor's food allowance. According to Old Testament law, as well as the provisions that would have been provided by the king of Persia, he would have been allotted a governor's portion. And that would have been generous. Nehemiah nor his kinsmen took advantage of that portion. Under his leadership, he and his leaders sacrificed for kingdom purposes. That's what we're seeing in verse 14. They did not enjoy the provisions that had been allotted to them. They didn't use them. They didn't take advantage of them. They put the need to rebuild the wall ahead of their own rights and their own wishes. They could have had more but they did not take advantage of it. Notice Nehemiah's motivation, the fear of the Lord, verse 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. So previous governors had taken advantage of the people. They had taken everything that was coming to them, in spite of the fact that even in those days, the kingdom was suffering. But he wasn't talking about Ezra. Ezra wasn't a governor. And there's no evidence he was talking about Zerubbabel. But he was talking about some unnamed governors that likely preceded Zerubbabel that had done this. They laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. So why does Nehemiah behave differently than these previous governors? He says it in verse 15, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. That's why he had a fear of God. That word fear is a reverence. It means respect, piety, a reverential awe, a submissive fear. Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Talking about spiritual knowledge. Psalm 111.10 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Dr. John MacArthur writes this, this awe and admiring submissive fear is foundational for all spiritual knowledge and wisdom. While the unbeliever may make statements about life and truth, he does not have true and ultimate knowledge until he is in a redemptive relationship of reverential awe with God. And he goes on to write, the fear of the Lord is a state of mind in which one's own attitude, will, feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's. We are to have a fear of God. And sadly, we don't see much of that in churches today. They only see God as a God of love, and he is that. But we ought to reverence him, for he's holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's God. And we ought to be bowing before him in reverential fear of him. It does include the idea of a fear of God. And the fear of God is evidence that we've been born into the kingdom, isn't it? If we lack it, we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the household of faith. We must have a fear for God. He's fearful. Notice then in verse 16 that Nehemiah forsook gaining personal land for kingdom work. Verse 16 I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah's work was kingdom work, not personal gain. I mean, in his position, he could have worked to build up his personal kingdom, but he did not. He applied himself to the work on the wall. Under his leadership, his servants did the same. A godly leader must be an example, not trying to be above or living above the people that he leads. Nehemiah gave himself for the kingdom. He believed God's promises concerning the kingdom, and he likely thought that they were rebuilding the city where possibly the Messiah would one day reign. They were looking for the Messiah. They were waiting for this eternal king. Regardless, though, in obedience to God's purpose, he sacrificed for the kingdom. He sacrificed personal treasure for kingdom treasure. And that's exactly what we need to do. Jesus said this in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're not to lay up treasures on this earth. Those treasures are temporary. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. Those treasures are eternal. But more importantly, in this context, as it fits with the context of Nehemiah, Jesus said, 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure reveals your heart. No exceptions. Your treasure reveals your desires. It reveals what's important to you. Your treasure reveals exactly what you really love. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, keep in mind, it's not wrong to provide for your family. Actually, failure to do so identifies you as being worse than an unbeliever. It's not wrong to be a responsible citizen, to pay bills and taxes. We have to live in this world. It's not wrong to prepare for the future. Responsible to be ready for difficult times, just like in Proverbs, how the ant prepares. It's not even wrong to give good gifts to your spouse and your children, those you love. But there's a difference between being responsible in this world and living for the world. We need to be responsible as believers. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not to live for this world. This is not our home. It's a temporary residence, like refugees. So we really need to have an eternal perspective, not just living for today, but living for eternity. And one of the things that we struggled with so desperately, working with the Mi'kmaq Indians, and you might sort of think some of this is funny because it, it's different than the way we live today. But it was so hard to get them to see the eternal. Matter of fact, we couldn't get them to look to tomorrow. They would actually go around the reserve, and this was almost a daily thing. You know, one family needs something to eat, and they go to one house and they get a potato. They go to another house and get a carrot. Go to another house and get a turnip. And till they have enough to make a soup. And they say, I want to borrow a potato. Now, they have no intention of paying it back. And everybody knows what they mean. You know, when you need a potato and I have it, I'll give you a potato. But it's not like potato for potato. And that's the way the people live. And because of that, just living for today, they, we had a hard time getting them to look to the future. And especially to eternity. But we need to live with eternity in our hearts, don't we? With the hope of heaven, living for Christ. He needs to take that priority in our hearts. Paul wrote to those in Colossae chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been risen up with Christ, keep seeking the things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on this, this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Not on our minds, not on the things of this earth, but on things above. Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We're soldiers for Christ. 
if we are in Christ. Moses was also an example of living for eternity. Not too long ago, we went through this passage in Hebrews 11. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a reward. We need to have eternity in our hearts. It's not about this life. The older you get, the more you start to understand, especially as a believer, that this life doesn't have much to offer us. It's all temporary. It's vanishing away. This was the testimony of Nehemiah. Nehemiah gave up personal, gave up gaining personal land for a kingdom wall. He didn't live for the present. In one sense, he lived with eternity in his heart. He served God and God's people, putting them above his own interest. Here's the question. How do you and I live? Do we live for this life or do we live for eternity? Notice in spite of this, that Nehemiah's needs were met. Look at verse 17 and the first part of 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox, <coughs> excuse me, six choice sheep. <clears throat> also birds were prepared for me. And once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. So Nehemiah and his people had enough. God provided for them and his servants. One ox, six sheep, and birds. And once every 10 days, an abundance of wine was furnished for them. God provided for their needs and even blessed them above their needs with occasional supply of wine. They sacrificed. They did not take advantage of all that would naturally be coming to them. So they sacrificed, but their needs were met. They were blessed by God. And when God meets our needs, we need to see that every good thing comes from God. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He's faithful, folks. Every good thing comes from Him. It's God's nature to provide for His children. We need to live for Him regardless. We need to be willing to die regardless. But it's the nature of God to provide for His children. We need to recognize every good blessing as from God and to be responsible with the provisions he's given us. We need to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. Notice also Nehemiah cared for the people. Verse 18b, 
Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. He didn't use his whole allowance. What would be coming to him because the people were suffering? The people were doing without. This is the response of a humble leader. Nehemiah was a humble leader. Not because Nehemiah was special, but because God had done a work in his life. If you desire to be a godly leader, you must be willing to identify with those you lead. Even to do without when they do without. Not like these TV pastors or mega pastors today that have everything. And they don't really care about the people that they supposedly serve. That's not a leader. That's a usurper. That's wicked. The scripture has a lot to say about that. How can a leader be respected and trusted when he lives like he's more important than the people that he's supposed to be leading? Finally, notice in verse 19, Nehemiah's desire to please the Lord. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. These words in the Hebrew for good means pleasant or agreeable to the senses. And as I studied this, I came to the conclusion, I don't think Nehemiah was looking for God to honor him. Rather, his desire was to be pleasing to God. Nehemiah wanted everything he had done for the people to please his God. He wanted to be pleasing in his sight. Nehemiah wanted God to be pleased when he remembered him. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us all that is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. You see, it's the work of God that equips us and makes us able to please him. In 1 John chapter 3, John says that we receive what we ask because we keep his commandments and do that, do things, excuse me, that are pleasing in his sight. So another question, are we really pleasing in his sight? Just like with Nehemiah, it begins with the fear of the Lord. Oh, that we might have a reverent fear for God. And fall on our faces before him. In conclusion, Nehemiah often referred to God's covenant promises. All through the book of Nehemiah. He trusted his promises. He knew that God was faithful, that God keeps his promises, and he believed him with all his heart. And because of that, he enthusiastically lived for God. But you know, Nehemiah had only seen a few promises actually fulfilled. 
He trusted God for the ones that had not been fulfilled. But we've seen many, many more promises fulfilled than Nehemiah ever thought about. We've seen promises concerning the Messiah fulfilled at his first coming. God had promised that he would, through the seed of the woman, that he would crush the authority of Satan, Genesis 3.15. He had promised that a descendant of Abraham would bless the whole world, Genesis 12.3. He promised that a descendant of David would sit on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Isaiah 9. He promised that this Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. That he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. That his name would actually be called Emmanuel, with us, the God, Isaiah 7, 14. That he would heal many, Isaiah 35. That he would be rejected by his own people, the Jews, Isaiah 53 that he would be hated without a cause, Psalm 69, that he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41. He would be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 27. It actually said that he would be silent when accused, Isaiah 53. The prophecy said that he would be mocked and insulted, Psalm 22. Zechariah 11 says that his excuse me, his identity would be sold, not for 29 pieces of silver or 31, but for 30 pieces of silver, and the money would be used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. Psalm 22 said that they would cast lots, soldiers, for his coat. Psalm 69, he would be given gall and vinegar to drink. Isaiah 50, he would be scourged and spit upon. Psalm 22, his hands and his feet would be pierced. Zechariah 12, his body would be pierced, his side. Daniel 9 gives us the time of his death after the 69th week of Daniel, and that's when he died. Psalm 34 said not a bone and his body would be broken. We have all these Old Testament prophecies describing a crucifixion that hadn't even been invented yet. But when people were crucified, the last thing that happened, they broke their legs because that's what caused them to suffocate to death. I mean, think of it. You're hanging by your arms, by the nails in your wrists or palms. And after a while, you get weak and you can't breathe any longer. And so you push yourself up with your feet so that you can breathe again until you can't stand the pain on your feet and your legs and you slump down. Hanging there, you start to suffocate. So to hasten death, they would come and break the legs of the person being crucified. But Jesus Christ is prophesied to be the one that would be crucified. We see details of the crucifixion that had not been invented yet but not a bone in his body would be broken because he gave up his spirit. Prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, he would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53, he would be crucified with transgressors. Psalm 16, he would be resurrected, raised from the dead. 
Psalm 68, he would ascend back to heaven. And it goes on and on and on. In doing so, he was bearing our iniquities. Our iniquities were laid upon him. God crushed him because of our iniquities. Isaiah 53. You see, Jesus came to rescue those that would believe. His name is Yeshua. Yah saves, or God saves. God rescues. Jesus is the one Israel had been waiting for. The one promised in the scriptures long ago. But he came. He lived a sinless life. And he fulfilled every single prophecy. So just like Nehemiah, we can look back and we can see God's faithfulness. But we have much more of the record because Christ has come to save. His name will be called Jesus, Yeshua. God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. People in that day were looking, most of them, for a Messiah that would deliver them from the tyranny of the Gentiles. In Christ's day, from the tyranny of Rome itself. But Jesus did not come to deliver from Rome. He came to deliver from something far greater and far more destructive than a nation of tyrants. He came to deliver from sin. Oh, that we might look to him in faith, trusting him. He is Yeshua. He is the God saves. Zachariah's prophecy, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied in Luke chapter 1 and said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The horn is where the power, the strength of the animal dwells. God's power to save. Rest in Yeshua, the Mashiach, Messiah. Wasn't talking about his son, John the Baptist. He was a Levite, not of the house of David. Jesus was the house of David. It's interesting when you open the book of Matthew, the very first book, verse says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. It doesn't say the son of Abraham, the son of... It says the son of David. He was the one, the Mashiach, the one that would come and sit on the throne of David and reign. Folks, he reigns today in the hearts of every true believer. May he reign in your heart today. If you have questions today about your eternal salvation, look to him. For there's no other name given among, under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. John said this, the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray.